Good morning, my friend. Hope you're doing well. It is Friday morning. It's cold outside, about 40 degrees. It feels great. The moon is an incredible crescent up over the river, and I'm excited about another great day. Um, hope that you got some rest last night. I had a good night's sleep last night. I had a great day in the operating room yesterday with Al and Kristen and Damon and the whole team, and took good care of folks, and looking forward to a little relaxing weekend. Um had a phone call yesterday, one of those terrifying phone calls that you get. One of our kids had a car accident, and, and I, everybody's okay. But, you know, you hear that voice, um, the fear and the and the tears and the scared, and, and it just shakes you to your core. And fortunately, the Lord blessed our family that everything's okay. But no matter how old your kids get, they're still your kids, right? And you hear this that, that little tremble in their voice, and it's just scary for a minute. So we are um, continually reminded how fragile life is, and and uh, everybody's okay. But but I just just want to encourage you, like take take every moment you can. Tell the people that are important to you that you love them. Um, I live in a world where every day almost we see somebody or deliver some news to somebody that something bad or difficult is happening, and these massive things pop up in our lives, and you just have to be. Uh, mindful and present in every moment that you have. Every moment is a gift. Every moment is a blessing. And don't let any of them slip by. Now, this afternoon, I'm going to be recording an interview with an author named Clarissa Mole, who's got a great story, and she's written a beautiful book um, that's about grief. Um, she lost her husband tragically in a hiking accident and has gone on to uh, write a book that is, I think, really equipping um people to go through difficult times. Her book's called Beyond the Darkness. And I found out about her book because of a post that my friend John Swanson did. Pastor John Swanson, I've told you about him numerous times. 300 words a day is his blog, the number 300, and then the, the word words a day, 300wordsaday.com is John's daily blog. And he's a pastor, a hospital chaplain. Um, I used him as kind of an influence for the character in my book. I've seen the interview that I call Pastor John. He's kind of an amalgam of a lot of different chaplains and pastors that I've worked with. And um, so I kind of made a made a character that reminded me a lot of John Swanson uh, out of him, out of all those real people and, and real experiences. Um, I use John as the face because I've come to see him along with Tata as kind of the person I would go to if I was hurting, and I have, and the person I would go to if something hard was happening. And so I thought as a preface to next Friday conversation that I'm going to hopefully release the Clarissa Mole episode, um, I thought I would honor John and him introducing me to her and her book and her work by bringing back one of the first conversations that I ever had with him on the podcast. We did an episode um, back in 2021 called The Other Side of Pain. And John and I had a wonderful conversation about how you deal with people when they're going through hard things. And I think it'll be useful. It's a great Friday conversation I'm going to bring back to you today. I've got unbelievable guests coming up on the podcast. November is going to be just a great month of Friday conversations. We've got Clarissa Mole, Alyssa Childers, uh, Annie Grace of The Snaked Mind. Um, we've got several others lined up and, and some big things coming for you. So Friday conversations are one of my favorite things. I want to have a chance to sit down and talk to somebody I respect and admire and introduce you to a new friend or a new book or a new work. And I uh, hope this will be a blessing to you. And i um, just going to let Lisa tell you how to start today. But I want you to have an amazing weekend, friend. I hope you get some rest. Go hug your kids, hug your family, tell your wife or your husband you love them. And uh, we're grateful that this little car wreck didn't turn out to be something terrible for our family. Um, but it just reminded me to, to remind you, uh, don't take anything for granted. And um, when somebody is hurting, you need some tools to know how to help them. And John Swanson is going to give us that in today's Friday conversation. And listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And Lisa always reminds me that you have to start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, 
faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. And I'm really excited to bring you a special guest today um, who is one of the people I respect the most in the world. Now, there's a a very... um, rigorous discipline that I have in my life. I'm not probably the most disciplined person you've ever met, but there's one thing that I do, and I do it essentially every day, and that is I get up very early, usually at 3 a.m., and people say, why in the world do you get up at 3 a.m.? Well, if you have a full-time job like I do as a brain surgeon, neurosurgeon, um, and you have a family, there's a lot of responsibilities, and you have a certain time that you have to be somewhere every day, if you want to do something else, like write books or blog or podcast or whatever, then you've got to find some time to do it that doesn't affect the other responsibilities that you have. Now, I think it's funny when people tell me, how do you have so much time on your hands? And those same people are out hunting on the weekends or fishing or playing golf or you know, doing other things that take time from their families during the day. But I don't want to do that. So I take my time super early in the morning. In fact, right now is very early in the morning on a Sunday um, because I've got stuff that I have to do later on today, responsibilities that I don't want to carve out for my family. So one of the things I do every morning when I first get up is I try to uh, obey the biblical principle of first things. Um, Our God is a God who wants to be first in our lives. And, And over and over in Scripture, Um, He says he wants to be first. Bring me the first. Give me the best, the top, and I'll give you back more than you can imagine. That's Habakkuk. So as part of that first things mentality, I try to focus my thinking the very first thing in the morning on Bible study and prayer. I play worship music, and I spend some time with my God. The first email I send every day is something that I call Lemail, that Lisa gets the first, just the first bit of my attention other than to God every day I want to give to my wife. So she gets an email long before she wakes up every day just to know that I've taken some time to think about her and, and communicate with her in some way for that day. And so I wake up, I engage in my spiritual time, I send my email to Lisa, and then there are several things that I read. And the first one that I read um, after the Bible every morning is a blog called 300, the, the number 300, 300 words a day. 300wordsaday.com is a blog. I get it through email, actually, from a pastor named John Swanson. John's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's a chaplain and pastor, and he writes a short blog. You can guess it. It's about 300 words every day, so it just takes a couple minutes to read it. And it's always got some like gut-punch truth in it, something really profound, something really useful. And I find John's work to be uh, very important in my daily formation. And so uh, you're healed, you're healed <laughs> tongue-tied this morning. You will hear the story of how John and I uh, came to know each other. In just a few minutes, um, and John's uh, graciously given us some of his time today. And the reason I asked him here is for the last several years, he's been working not in a church anymore, uh, but as a hospital chaplain. And so if you've read my recent book, I've seen the end of you, and I hope you have, um, it talks a lot about what you do when you're faced with hard things. What, what do you do when you find out you have cancer? What do you do when you find out something that threatens to take your hope away? And to some extent, how do you help other people in that? But my book's mostly about the ways that people navigate hard things, including my own experience and and Lisa's experience, our family's experience of losing a child. But the other side of that, what I call the other side of pain, is what do you do when somebody that's next to you, that you care about, that you love, or that you're just encountering in life, when they're the ones going through the hard thing? It's not you as the first person. But but someone else, how do you handle that? What do you say? What don't you say? And how do you engage in other people in a helpful and meaningful way that makes it better and not worse when you're on the other side of pain? John Swanson is a pastor, a chaplain, a writer, and holds a Ph.D. He's helping me, and he's been helping me and Lisa for years. He's got several books that are really life-altering, I would say, and I don't say that lightly. 
Um, but I'll put links to all his books in the show notes and his blogs and his websites and all the work that he's doing. Um, and we'll talk about that in the interview. But I just want you to, to get to know John Swanson a little bit today. And I want you to hear this great conversation that he and I had because I think it will really help you when you're trying to help someone else who's hurting. We're going to go deep today on the other side of pain. And we're going to start today. Okay, folks, we are back, and I'm here with my friend who, it's funny in this day and age, you can have a friend that you've never met. Um, but uh, Lisa and I met uh, John Swanson uh, digitally back in maybe 2014, I think, when my first book came out, um, yeah. through uh, an online connection with another person who I've never met, um, <laughs> John, Chris Brogan, really. Um, John is a chaplain at a hospital, and uh, he's a pastor and a writer, a really outstanding writer, and um, I just want to uh, take a minute uh, to uh, introduce John. Um, John, thanks so much for being on the show with us tonight. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself and, and where you're from, where you live, what you do. Um, Nancy and I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is in the northeast corner of flyover country. Uh, I work as a hospital chaplain. Uh, I also uh, do some consulting for churches, uh, and do some teaching uh, at the college and grad school level in spiritual formation and uh, some related subjects that way. Uh, I spent the first half of my career in higher education, and then I spent the second half of my career as an associate executive pastor in a couple of churches, and now in the third half of my career, um, I have having the opportunity to do this. The third half. I love that. The third half of my career. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, it was probably a year and a half or two years ago that you, you transitioned out of ministry and into hospital chaplaincy. Is that right? It feels like that, but it was actually four years ago. Four years. Um, wow. In January 2020. So in 2016, uh, came to the end of, um, realized that it was time to step back from the congregation that I was uh, working with uh, yeah. in a really positive kind of way and had no idea what was going to be next. And so I never would have picked this, uh, but at this point I would never trade this. All right. So. Well, I'll tell some stories about you. So um, when I wrote my first book, um, No Place to Hide, it was published in 2014, and I was – trying to learn how to engage in the business of being online and, and interact with people and help people and, and all of that. And in the process of doing that, um, Lisa and I encountered a man named Chris Brogan, who he and his partner, Rob Hatch, um, are sort of coaches for people who want to learn how to do things online and influence other people and help people. And, and in the process of that, um, Chris read my book and he said, um, he had me on his podcast at the time, and he said, hey, there's another guy, and he held up a book um, called A Great Work, um, and he said, there's a guy named John Swanson that I think you guys would connect uh, well with each other, and Chris made this introduction, and, and we did actually connect well with each other, mm-hmm. um, and I'll tell you, John, I, I've probably said this to you before, but I have a very disciplined morning routine, and so I get up every morning at 3, and I spend some time with worship music in the Bible, and then the first email I send every morning is to my wife. Um, that she calls Lee mail. Uh, and then, and, and that great. Um, so she gets a Lee mail every morning. And then, um, and then I spend a few minutes reading, um, three devotionals. And one of them is uh, John Piper that I read almost every day. Another one is Max Lucado. That's an old friend of ours. Um, he used to be our pastor and I read him almost every day. And then I read 300 words a day, which is John Swanson's blog. And, um, it is, uh, eponymous. It's, it's 300 words a day. It's the, the number 300 words a day.com, right? Is yep. your site. And tell us a little bit about that. Where, where'd that come from? And, uh, it's extremely helpful by the way. So where, where did 300 words a day come from, John? In uh, 2008, I think it was, um, actually at the end of 2008, I was listening to a conversation about writing some devotionals, uh, and Nance and I both said, I could do that. And so I started out writing my way through the book of Matthew, but with the goal of being as unchurchy as I possibly could. Right. Uh, there is... Um, there are lots of times that we talk about scripture and we talk about God uh, and it sounds like it's inside baseball. Uh, it sounds like the language that both you and I use 
when we're behind the scenes in a hospital situation. Right. The trouble with that is lots of times people just don't understand that. And so uh, I have been working to uh, dig into scripture, uh, dig into what life following Jesus looks like, but do it in a way that's not preachy, to do it in a way that's uh, as accessible as I can make it. So that's my goal. And it, and it really works. It. Thanks. I've been doing it since 2009, so uh, it feels like it's been a long time. And then on, uh, on social media, you've got a, a handle, a, a nickname, the Social Media Chaplain. Uh, where'd that come from? In uh, a couple of years before 2009, I uh, was with a group of people called, um, or at a conference called SOBCON, um, Successful Outstanding Bloggers or something like that, and tried to figure out what it was that I was doing and realized that, that the work that I do online is like a chaplain. Uh, so you're not preaching, you're trying to be present with people, uh, yeah. but I'm doing it in the social media environment. So I made it up, and um, there's one other person that's talked a little bit about doing that, but because I registered the domain, it's me. <laughs> so he's the social media chaplain. And, I'm, you know, it's, it's funny how God, um, people would say fate or accident or, you know, or whatever, but I think it's God, introduces you to people, and they, and they influence your life sometimes. And um, John wrote a book um, called Lent for Non-Lent People. And I'm raised in a fundamentalist tradition um, in the Church of Christ, and Lent was the farthest thing anybody talked about. And you know, we didn't even talk about Easter, right? It was, you know, all Sundays are the same, you know, <laughs> that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and so for me, the, the concept of keeping Lent was, it really triggered some, like, idolatry kind of bells for me. Like, like, like that's not what we do. We're Protestants. We're not Catholics, right? Um, and John's little book about Lent for non-Lent people um, changed my perspective. I, I love when something, when I'm an adult person who thinks he's a smart guy and, and somebody like sort of fundamentally changes how I look at something and it benefits me. So talk just a, just a second about that since it's almost Lent. So if you're a person out there who has never kept Lent and doesn't understand what it is or thinks it's just a Catholic thing, John can give you uh, 90 seconds here on why you ought to think about it differently. When um, God talks about fasting in Scripture a lot and talks about other kinds of things, and too often we look for a technical obedience kind of thing. And instead, in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah 58, um, God says, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for that technical obedience. What I'm looking for is for you to give up yourself and give up control and focus on others. Uh, And so, too often we've talked about Lent as being a giving up. Um, But what if it's a taking on a commitment uh, to be for others, um, to turn toward God? And so uh, in that book, Lent for Non-Lent People, it explores a little bit of um, how do we do that giving up and giving toward and moving toward um, in a way that connects us more closely with God and connects us more closely closely with others, and maybe disconnects us a little bit from ourselves. Right. It's brilliant. It's just got some practical things. You can do this every day. Um, I pick it up, folks, Amazon. It's, what is it, $3 or something? It's it's really accessible. well, it's probably ninety nine cents as an ebook. It's a little more as the print version. So. Yeah, yeah, and there's even times I've seen it unlimited, Kindle Unlimited, or something for zero dollars. Mm-hmm. So yeah, check it out. Yeah. Check out John Swanson. It's J O N um, Swanson uh, on Amazon, and uh, I would highly encourage you to read his books. The other one about Nehemiah, the great work, is probably your longest book, right? It, it's yep. it's it's a, yep. a book length treatment of the book of Nehemiah, and it's it's as if he's sitting and having a conversation about the work that Nehemiah did. It's, it's amazing um great book and um but all that beautiful stuff that we've talked about with you john is not the reason i asked you to be on the show tonight um so folks i think i said it in the pre-roll um that you'll that you've already listened to but um john was one of the early readers of my book um i've seen the interview um because john was working in the hospital setting and he and i had had a lot of conversations um we unfortunately both share um, the fact that we've lost children, um, 
and and so we had a lot of reasons to talk about some of the things that I was dealing with as I wrote that book. And and John very graciously read um, really one of the early versions of that book, probably back in maybe 2016. Um, and then it was published, you know, ultimately acquired um, in 2018, and finally came out this year. Um, and John's been one of the great kind of. And it takes a long time, doesn't it? One of the one of the great champions of that book, and you know, um, and so in the, in all of that conversation that we had about um, how that book was going to help people um, when they're dealing with hard things, it, it came to me that there's a there's an other side of every one of those conversations about how to deal with hard things. And and the other side is when you're the person that needs to be there to help somebody else when they're in a hard thing. And that's what John does as a chaplain every day. So I thought, John, can we just talk a little bit tonight about um, the uncomfortable situation that we find ourselves in often when somebody that we love or somebody that we care about is going through something that Maybe outside of our experience, but but we're in it with them. And, and give us some tools for how we help people in those moments. Um, probably one of the most important tools is to just be there, even if we don't know what to say, and if we don't know what to say, to shut up. Yeah, uh, I think that um, often we want to barrage people with solutions. So we say, oh, here's something that I heard and here's something that I experienced and here's something that I read and my uncle Harry tried this treatment and, and all of those things may be true, but in that moment, the person that we're interacting with has no space whatsoever to do any kind of processing. Right. Uh, and the, one of the most important things is just to sit silently. In the book of Job, Job's three friends that, that showed up to be with him um, until they opened their mouths, they were wonderful because they just right. sat quietly with Job. When they started talking, that's, right. that's when they got in trouble. But that's right. But that opportunity to just be there and shut up, yeah, um, it's huge. You, you know that that's funny. Um, there was an old comedian named Jerry Clower. <laughs> you remember him? And he, he had a routine called sitting up with the dead, and they would go up to the funeral home and sit with the dead body and just not talk all night. But when when my son passed away, um, there was a guy who was a nurse in my operating room, great Christian man named Zane Kirkland. Um, and Zane was from Montgomery, Alabama, and our practice was in Auburn. So every day for 11 years, he drove that 45 miles to work with me. And when Mitch died, um, Zane came to the house couple hours you know after we got home from the from from the whole event occurring and he just showed up and he sat in our living room and it felt like for days you know and zane would sit there and he wouldn't say much and he would just once in a while when somebody was having a moment he would just go put his arm around him or just you know just sit there and a couple of times we ran out of toilet paper and he would just run to the store and just take care of stuff and and that meant more than a lot of the people who came over and said things like, I know how you're feeling, or, you know, God must have needed him more than you did, or or all this is going to work out for good. You know, that's a promise in the Bible. It's going to work out for good. Zane just being there, like what you said really resonated with me, and it reminded me of that. Yeah, really mattered. Well, I think that some of those things that we say actually are lies. Yeah. So um, that thing of um, God always takes the best, it's like, Okay, so that means that I'm the worst, right? Yeah, because I'm still uh, here. Yeah. It's because I'm still here. <clears throat> and um, I think that when we say to, I mean, when we say to a kid, um, well, God just needed another angel, what we're saying is, so God killed my baby sister. Yeah. Well, um, that's not a helpful thing. Um, I used to, I used to say that the thing to, to always say was, I'm sorry for your loss. And I think that there's a place for that. But I think there's also a place for us looking somebody in the eye and saying, this is hard. And just stopping there. Because too often in our attempt to fill in those answers, um, we don't acknowledge the thing that's most true at that moment. And that is, this is hard. Yeah. Um, when I'm talking to a... Um, when I'm talking to a man whose wife is in the bed between us and has just died, um, the, 
for him to say, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've got no argument with that. I agree. This is the hardest thing that you have ever done. Yeah. And let's just sit with that for a little bit. Um, I think another, another thing that um, those of us who are driven by faith and walk into rooms that are full of pain, we often think that we have to take Jesus with us into that room. Right. And so we're needing to talk and provide all those explanations um, on God's behalf, right. ignoring the fact that, that God's already in that room. That's right. Um, and maybe the best thing for us is to join in a conversation that's already going on. Right. And part of that involves going back to the very first thing I said, which is shut up. Yeah, just shut um, your mouth. Yeah. And just wait to hear, wait to hear what um, God is saying in this moment. And it may be that what God is saying is not to the other person, but to us. Go ahead and cry. Right. Um, this is a this is a perfect moment to have tears. Uh, and I make no apology for. I make no apology when I'm standing next to a bed with a family gathered around and, and um, mom is in the bed and has just died and we're holding hands. I make no apology for as I am praying, choking up and not being able to, um, to finish well. Because in those moments I'm participating too because right. this is a human being that was conversing and is now not. That's right. Um, and if that's not a holy moment, um, a moment where God is present, um, we're missing something. That's exactly right. Um, folks, by the way, um, I don't know if I've told John this. I think I probably have. But um, over the course of my career as a physician, um, some of the most important moments in my being able to carry on, especially in the war, were moments that I had with hospital chaplains. Um, and one of the pivotal moments in in my development as a person was with a chaplain at the time, a, a pastor at the hospital who, a pastor at the church in San Antonio who also was a chaplain at the hospital. So I'm trying to say Dennis McDonald, <clears throat> who um, after 9-11, Dennis came uh, to the military base and for a little while, they had access problems, so they couldn't get onto the base. The civilian pastors and chaplains couldn't get onto the base. So because I went to the church and I was on in the military, Dennis would reach out and call me and ask me to visit people. And so I kind of started was acting as a chaplain by proxy for him. And then <laughs> we you know, and we got to know each other. And ultimately, later, I, I married his daughter. You know, So he became my father-in-law. So Dennis um, and John Swanson and some of the many conversations I've had with them um, represent the character in my book, Pastor John. So the two of you guys um, sort of uh, became the personification of all these true stories that I've had with hospital chaplains over the years. So, so thank you for, for being in my book, John. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, um, for me, the fact that um, Dennis and I both do this, but we do it interacting with lots of other people as a reminder that um, this provision of care is a team. That's right. Uh, I think too often... And it, it was one of the biggest things for me in moving from being a pastor to being a chaplain is the idea of um, continuity of care that I'm on and then another person is on and another person is on. So in our work environment, that makes sense. Um, we have in the facility I'm in, we have a chaplain on location 24-7, 365. But I think that um, that paid continuity of care is a reminder that uh, we need to be believing that we are not the only person who cares about this situation. That's right. Um, there is a place for us from time to time to step away um, and let somebody else provide care. And um, if we're talking about how to provide care for other people, one of the most important things, and you and I both understand this, is that we need care as well. That's right. Um, both you and I have those situations where we come alongside coworkers mm -hmm. 
to provide that comfort and to provide that encouragement and to provide that support. And I think that that um, understanding that grief has a we component and and we run the risk of turning it into a me thing. Um, grief tends to isolate us, yeah, and to, and to to make us push other people away. And um, the more we can offer ourselves to each other, um, the more God can work through us offering ourselves to each other and provide that care for each other. Um, I love when I can do tag team stuff with a physician where they're the ones that inform the family about what just happened. Mm. And then we're the ones that get to stay there um, and provide that care, um, provide that presence. So um, you are not alone. And I, I am guessing, though I could be wrong, that for neurosurgeons, it's very possible to think that you're at the top of handling life and death kinds of situations. And in, and in most cases, you're the most trained person in the room in that. But life is bigger than that. That's right. And so um, I don't know how to do what you do. Um, truth is, you know how to do some of what I do. Um, but, but that weeness, that mutual support and encouragement right. is just huge. It is. It absolutely is. And especially for the families of the of the person who's going through it or has passed away because the physicians aren't there we, like we we our beeper goes off we run off and take care of something else and and we're moving on to the next you know tragic thing that we have to deal with and there's there's an importance in presence and in staying and sitting and like we like you said while ago with my friend Zane there's an important aspect and having learned this as a recipient of it when we lost Mitch and you know Something else you said a while ago, John, about the the mutualness, the weeness, the shared parts of grief um, are so important, and it's surprising. I think when you go through it, um, Sunday was would have been Mitch's twenty sixth birthday, um, mm-hmm. and it's just you know what seven years since he he passed now. And Lisa and I were talking about things that we remembered in those moments after we lost him, and it was surprising how different some of our memories were right and it dawned on me and we were talking about memories of him when he was little and as he was growing up and all of that and it dawned on me that one of the saddest things is that the farther you get from loss i know i'm straying a little bit but the farther you get from loss i start being afraid that what i remember about my son isn't accurate I start worrying that nobody else is going to know who he really was because we're all just remembering little bits of it. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. It yeah. does. Um, and every time there is a death, all the people around that person have lost somebody different. That's right. So um, your memories of Mitch and Lisa's memories of Mitch are different. That's right. Um, they, you lost a different person and yet, um, Mitch isn't limited to your memories of him. That's right. And he's not limited to Lisa's memories of him, um, and his siblings memories of him. Um, he is, um, I hate spiritual platitudes. So I don't mean this as a platitude. I actually mean it as a deeper truth. He, um, Mitch is only fully known as God fully knows him. That's right. And so um, I think that for you, uh, part of trust is even when, my friend, you are old, way old, and Alzheimer's has taken hold of you. Yeah. Mitch is not gone. That's right. That's right. That's so important. Hear that, folks. If you're grieving or going through something hard in your own life or in the life of somebody you love like like they're not it, there's more to it than this and and there's permanence to who you are and and who the loved one is that that's not going to change even if your memory of it changes that I love that John that's beautiful and very helpful um give a, give us a couple of things um 
about your experience with glioblastoma from your perspective as a chaplain. Um, we've talked a lot about that tumor, and it's awful, and I wrote a whole book about it, right? But, but we've ta- you and I have talked about that. Like, how, what are those first moments like for you when you encounter a family who just found out about this? Um, I actually have run into, um, the reason I'm laughing is not long after reading your book, that very first draft, I walked into a room and that was the diagnosis. Uh, I mean, the guy had been living with the diagnosis and the treatment for a few months at that point. Um, this was at least his second time back into the hospital. So I am acutely aware of the diagnosis and all of the things that you've told me. So I walk into the room. There's that little bit of hesitation about that. Right. I ask him if I can sit down in this chair next to him. And he nods, and I sit down in the chair next to him, and we're talking a little bit, and, and it's time for me to leave. And I stood up, or actually more accurately, I started to stand up and discovered that it was an alarmed chair. <laughs> and I didn't know how to turn off the chair alarm. And I looked over at him and, and I said, you knew what you were doing. And there was that little <laughs> glimmer of um, laughing on his part. And for me, it's that huge reminder that um, you have a diagnosis, but you're not your diagnosis. That's right. Um, he still existed as somebody with humor and as somebody um, fighting a battle of it, knowing that there were mixed feelings about it, and I think too often, um, and this is, a, this is a thing that I wrestle with, too often I can limit myself to a person's diagnosis when I walk into the room. Yeah. Rather than engaging with who they are, where they are at that moment. And so to know it, but to look past that diagnosis because uh, I've been in other situations that, that sound an awful lot like your book, where there was a person who, um, who was ignoring the diagnosis, even as the surgeries were um, not accomplishing anything. Right. And there was that, um, I'm going to keep fighting this, which got in the way of his capacity to interact with people. Wow. Um, and that was just... Um, I look at that and it's, I look at those two people and it's like, this person knows it and is engaging with what he's got. This person knows it, but is denying it. And in that denial is, um, I think hurting some relationships, it's clinging to some false faith. That's not helpful. Um, It's leading to some judgment of himself and eventually some judgment of God. Uh, So. Wow. Yeah. That's heavy stuff. You know, I, I appreciate so much the work that you do. And, and, you know, John's one of these people, um, I've got a touch of it too. Like you've got a day job that's a powerful and, 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 and heavy job that you do. And yet you feel called to write and to share your message with other people and to minister to people on Twitter and Facebook and, and, and you put yourself out there. What is it about, us that, that gives us that thing. Why, why do we need to do that? It's off topic, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I think with my fingers. So I discover what I know and sometimes what I feel by the process of typing. Um, that process of writing is um, in my discipline, which is Uh, actually rhetorical theory, we talk about um, rhetoric being epistemic, which means that um, discourse um, creates a reality, reveals reality. It's how we come to know things. So it's not that we're creating reality, um, but it's that we're coming to know what we're thinking. That's right. And so it's often that uh, I will start typing, not knowing where I'm going. Exactly. And in that process of typing, I'll realize, oh, this is what just happened, and this is where it's going. Right. Um, in, a, in a post I was just reading, um, or was just writing, we do a thing called blessing of the blankets. Um, in our um, surgical trauma ICU, um, patients who are uh, terminally ill, 
um, so close to being event withdrawal or in those situations. Um, sticky nurses and other staff and other people have made blankets um, uh, of a variety of things, and they ask chaplains to pray for them. And it was, um, so yesterday I had the opportunity to pray for this whole batch of blankets. And <laughs> as I was thinking about what, what that means, I started writing about it today. And as I was writing about it, I realized, oh, yeah, this is kind of the opposite of, um, of a thing that happens in Scripture where people wanted to have blankets, handkerchiefs, touch Paul, and then they would lay them on sick people and they would get well. And I realized, right. no, that's not what I'm doing. Um, I don't have the power that Paul has, but I can hold each of those blankets knowing that um, eventually it's going to be laid on a bed and it's going to be touched by techs and it's going to be touched by nurses and it's going to be touched by a variety of people. And in that process, um, um, I can pray for how God touches those people in that situation. Wow. But I only know that as I think about it and as I write it. And so writing for me is that kind of, um, if I couldn't write, um, I wouldn't be able to think. Wow. Um, and in fact, it's so, for me, it's, um, it's so bad, if you will, that I can use my phone and I can use my thumbs, but that doesn't let me think. Right. And so if I'm going to do anything reflective, I need to hook a keyboard up to my phone, not a touch keyboard, but I've got an actual keyboard that I can use. Wow. So that's what writing does is it, it lets me find out what I'm thinking and feeling. And wow. fortunately, uh, at least some of the time, it helps guide other people in their thinking and feeling as well. That's right. John, is, um, as you might have discerned, um, he's not a lay pastor. John has a PhD. Um, what's your, what's your doctorate in? <laughs> it's in rhetorical theory and criticism yeah. from the university of Texas at Austin. So not a moron here we're dealing with. <laughs> so I just, I, I love the intellectual way in which you, you describe what you do and, and the way that you think things out. When, when I used to send John um, an email or a text, I would often get back from him a video um, because he he didn't want to text, he wanted to communicate, and I love that. I, we've never really talked about the fact that how much I appreciate those little videos that you sent. But um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to. Go ahead. If I can, if I can pick up on that though, Lee. Part of the reason that I do that is when we are interacting with each other, there is so much that's not the words. That's right. And so. If we're talking with somebody who is in grief, who's in a difficult situation, the silence conveys as much significance as the words convey. That's right. The, the pace of our speech conveys. And so um, I think that's why presence matters so much. And I think that when we think about God being the word, um, that includes words, but it also includes presence, and it also includes silence, and it also includes intonation, and it also includes all those things. And so I think that, that as we're pro- providing care for each other, um, as much richness um, as possible is helpful. Wow. You know, I couldn't have found a better way to bring this home than what you just said. You know, we're talking about when it's not you that's just gotten the worst news of your life, when it's not you that is dying, when it's somebody else and you're the one in the slot that's going to need to be there for them, presence, silence, purpose in the things that you say, um, the surgical avoidance of cliche and platitude. Um, I, I, I am a conflict avoider um, grande. grande. I I don't like conflict. I am not a violent person. But the only time I've ever actually wanted to punch an adult human was a guy that at my son's funeral told me, you know, um, I I know y'all are Christians and whatever sins Mitch had, you know, I bet you he confessed them right before he died and I'm, I'm sure he got to heaven. And I just wanted to strangle this guy. And he was well-meaning. I mean, he was—he really was 
you know, hoping that my son confessed his sins on his dying breath and made it to heaven. And and I wanted to kill this man. And mm-hmm. in that moment, you know, being in grief, like you don't necessarily process things. Like I was actually thinking, how can I hit this guy and not get not ruin the funeral, right? Mm-hmm. Um that's the worst thing you can do to somebody is is say a bunch of Christian-y stuff in that moment. I and mean, some of those things might need to be said down the road, not that, but but mm-hmm. some of the things that we say might need to be said later, you know. Romans 8:28, that promise of all things working together for good has meant a lot to me as the years have gone by because I've seen ways that that the pain of losing my son have have been redeemed and helped other people and that gives him an opportunity to have meaning and purpose, you know, years after he's passed away, right? But in the first five minutes after your son dies, nobody should tell you that God's gonna use that for good. Timing. It's everything. Just recently, um fortunately I wasn't in the room when this happened or I would have had a similar response to your response, Lee. Um, a a woman in her 60s, I think, um, had been out on Sunday morning for breakfast. She had um, fallen. Um, she ended up walking into the restaurant. Her heart started to give out on her, um, got to our place. She ended mm. up dying very quickly in the ER. Wow. And so family is starting to come. Her husband's there and family's starting to get there. And they're off in a consult room waiting for their pastor to come. And the pastor arrives. This is within an hour of her surprise death. Wow. And somebody says to him, good morning. And his response is, without thinking, I'm sure, I'm hoping, was, it is a good morning. Uh. And it's like... Okay, technically, theologically, for her, this is a great time. Right. And um, technically, theologically, blah, 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 blah. But it's possible for two things to be true at the same time. That's right. It's true for the other person, the person who has died, to feel great. And at the same time, for this to hurt like hell. That's exactly right. Um, And that word is chosen advisedly. If, If hell is separation, then at this moment, they are not here. That's right. And so I think that that um, we've got to hold in place those two truths that that what's true is true, but what this feels like is awful. That's right. Um, and to have that sensitivity and timing and and to take our lead from the other person rather than from um, from our discomfort with the silence and the pain, because that's one of the things that happens is. We are uncomfortable with the other person's silence and the other yeah. person's pain. So yeah. we think we have to fill that in. Right. And it never works. That's right. One of the best bits of medicine and grace you can give another person is just to be there with them. Um, I know you must have felt that um, when you lost your child. And um, we certainly felt that the people who were willing to give us their time and save their words were some of the best gifts we got. Um, John, how do people connect with you online? Uh, J.N. Swanson. Uh, I'm at J.N. Swanson on Twitter. Um, I'm at J.N. Swanson, hmm, a couple other places. Um, it's J-O-N um, Swanson in a bunch of places, 300wordsaday.com. Uh, socialmediachaplain.com is a new site that I've been working with, um, unpacking a little bit. So, um, socialmediachaplain.com, 300wordsaday.com. Great. I'm hoping to get out to Indiana to see you this year and meet face-to-face. That's our, that's our plan. We hope to get to do that. Um, folks, connect see, with John. It would, it would be awesome to hug you. It would. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, that would be really nice. We, we spent a lot of time together, folks, on, on uh, video and uh, email, and, and uh, John's been a great, um, really a pastor to me. Uh, you, you've helped me a lot, and um, really was instrumental in uh, helping. I've seen the end of you. And um, folks, take the time to check out 300 words a day. Um, you know, not that my recommendation should matter that much, but I have a, a very small number of things that I do every day. And one of them is read John Swanson. Um, and he's a, been a great blessing. So, John, thank you so much. Say hi to Nancy. And uh, I know people are going to get a lot out of uh, the time that you've shared with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. Say hi to Lisa as well. I'll do so. God bless you, brother. Take care. 
Wow, what a great conversation. I appreciate John's time tonight, and I hope that you have been blessed by it as I was. Um, please check out what John's doing online. Um, just a tremendous resource. In fact, um, pretty much all volunteer. He does have a link um, where you can support his work. Uh, we do um, with a, a donation of your um, conscience. If you find his work valuable and helpful to you and you want him to be able to reach other people, then uh, consider sponsoring John. It's one of the just really beneficial things on the internet that I, that I have found tremendous value in my own life. And I would encourage you to look and check out what John Swanson is doing and subscribe and follow him. Um, pray for his ministry. He's doing important work that not enough people are doing. Listen, I have been um, really blessed by a few people who seemed to understand what to do when they were encountering me in my hour of need. They knew what to say. They knew what not to say. They knew how to sit there. Zane Kirkland is one of them. Zane, if you're listening to this, you, you were one of the people. Rob Brooks, Zane Kirkland, um, our neighbors and friends, um, Heather Carson, Christy Truitt, Lisa and Hans van der Eyden in Alabama, when we were going through um, our difficulty after losing our son. Those people came alongside us, and they knew what to say. They knew how to be present. They knew how to listen and not talk so much. And it's so important to just just spend a little time preparing for that because you're going to come into that situation in your life. There's going to be a time when you're not the one going through it, but you're next to somebody. You're, you're, you love somebody. You are with someone when they receive that news or are going through that hard thing. And you need to have some tools and understand what to do. And I think John is very helpful uh, in learning how to do that. So spend some time with John Swanson. I think it will be beneficial to you. Listen, I'm really grateful for the time that we've spent tonight. I hope this episode has been helpful to you, and I will be back in just a few days with episode 19 of the Dr. Lee Warren Podcast. But for now, I want you to start thinking about how to help people when you're on the other side of pain, and I want you to start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.